We sit in hipster bars and discuss if we're poetic enough. We pet our neuroses till they curl up. Hello, everyone. This is Sarah Willie Hill. My name is Ashley Maritson. And we are Demons, Demons and Dames. Dames. Today, we're going to be talking about Hedy Lamar, and I'm really excited about this episode because she's one of the first people that I started looking at when we got this idea of doing this type of podcast and I've been so excited about it that I found myself like ranting to people I barely know that I've just met at parties about her life and times. Have, have you found that the number of invitations you're getting to parties has reflected that? Uh, maybe? Actually, I think most people have really dug it. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm excited about this episode because she's well fit. <laughs> she is well fit. I suspect, however, that's precisely the kind of attitude you want to combat. Well, I think it's the kind of attitude she would have wanted to combat, but I think also she's the type of woman that would have been like, yeah, I am. Okay, so we're not going to do this in quite a chronological way, but we're going to talk about who she is. I'm going to look at her background a little bit mm. and then why... Mix it up. I think... Sarah. Mix it up. She's just, like, one of the most fabulous people of the 20th century. Oh, dear. Stop gushing. <laughs> I, I can't help it. I have the biggest, like, girl crush. Okay. All right. Proceed. I'm willing to... I'm, I'm ready to just a, Just as a side as I rustle papers and I'm cutting this out anyway, I mm -hmm. fucking hate the term girl crush. It just infantilizes... Mm -hmm. Uh, lesbianism effect yeah, yes sapphism so Hedy Lamar was born Hedwig Eva Maria Keisler so my second favorite Hedwig mm, and oh. who's your first Hedwig and the angry Inch, obviously I was really hoping you'd say that but then also I was intrigued to see if you knew any others let me get back to you on that one I think there's an owl called Hedwig somewhere out there <gasps> But I'm not sure if that's in film and fiction or if it's an owl I know personally. <laughs> How many owls do you know personally, Ash? Enough that I can't keep track of all their names. Okay, so back to my second favourite, Hedwig. Mm -hmm. Hedwig Eva Maria Keisler was born on the 9th of November 1914 in Vienna to Gertrude Keisler and Emil Keisler. Her parents are both Jewish. Um, her mother converts to Catholicism and then raises Hedwig Catholic. So she comes from a very bourgeois family. Her father is a bank manager. You know, I called my dad bourgeois once. <laughs> and actually, now I think about it, he was a banker. He probably... He chucked me out of the car. Did he? He came back eventually, but I stopped him for a bit. Uh... That was an interesting teen. I think she had quite an idyllic girlhood, and that's how she really describes it when you listen to interviews with her. She loved Vienna. She was, you know, an only child. Her parents were very educated. They took her to the opera. She used to go get ice cream with her dad. Vienna is a gorgeous city. She was very, very precocious. She was also very beautiful from a young age. This is sounding an awful lot like me, by the way. Instead, of, <laughs> instead well, of going to the opera, we were going to Cliff Richards concerts. Uh, you can think about what happens to her and, and, and then decide if you want your life to keep going in that I'll direction. I'll let you know at what point it diverges. Okay, <laughs> good. Just, just hold that in mind. She wins a beauty contest when she's 12. She's an outstanding student. She was a natural at chemistry, specifically, was Ooh. her favourite. But she was really good all-rounded. She was also incredibly headstrong and precocious. Not like anybody we know in this room. 12-year-olds should not be able to enter beauty pageants. I aside. agree completely. She loved films, and in 1930, when she's 16, she basically sneaks into the Sasha Film Production Company, which is the largest production company in Austria, and gets herself a job as a script girl by forging a note from her mother. Goodness me, quite the self-starter. She is. This is also the same year when she's 16 that she starts getting her first roles in extras. And then in the next year in She 19... makes it sound so easy. <laughs> well, honestly, if you're that pretty... Yeah. Doors will open. And if you're that pretty and you're that smart... Yes. That ballsy. In 1931, she gets cast as in a prominent play entitled The Weaker Sex. Uh, hey, you know, sometimes you gotta take the money jobs. Yeah. I couldn't find any information about this play, and that actually makes me really happy. Because Which sex means... do you think they were talking about? Yeah, that's good one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so that's her stage debut. It gets better from there. Let's just say that. It's to get worse. Yeah. She does well enough that she ends up going to Berlin to further her career when she's 16. Berlin's got a pretty thriving film industry at this point. I mean, this is post-Weimar. Yeah. I'm assuming things are stiffening yeah. up. Here. Things are... 1930s. This is this is yeah. this is kind of the heyday. Oh, okay. All right. So my cultural reference for this period now is cabaret. I am going to make a horrible confession. Please stop. If you're going to say what I think you're going to say, I'd rather you just didn't say anything at all. Can we watch cabaret tonight, Ashley? Please. I'll have to think about that. It's a big film for me. I generally require some build up. Okay. And I might need to wear a costume. I've never seen it. I will, I will sing along. Totally get dressed up though. You give me fish nuts. I'm there. I've got enough fishnets for all of us. We'll Excellent. bite the street. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she Back goes to Berlin. Berlin. Yeah, she sorry. goes to Berlin. She doesn't do the best there, but she's cast in her first major film in 1933. She's only 18. Guess what the name of the film is? I know, so it wouldn't be a guess. Okay, so what's the name of the film? It's called Ecstasy. <gasps> they the... don't mean the drug, though. No. I think this is... I feel like the drug was named after the film. Oh, which was named after the religious notion of sort of ecstatic transportment. If we're talking about orgasms here, then I feel like we're on the same page. Yeah, I'm but talking, we might I'm not about be. that statue, Saint Saint Agnes. <laughs> you know, there's there's a, there's a there is a very lustily sort of kind of mm. suggestively pointed arrow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the film plot if there is much of a plot, which I think is debatable, is about a neglected young wife and of an indifferent older man, which in this case is definitely art foreshadowing reality. It's an international hit, not least, because you get to see a young, nubile, naked Hedy Lamarr. Naked? Yes, running through the forest and swimming in a lake. Oh, uh, in quite a healthy, sort of unsexual yeah, context. well, I think, I think it's definitely Romping. sexualized. But uh, you, you can see it on YouTube. And then there is also a orgasm scene. Just... People still get upset about those. I know. So Ash and I just watched this before we started recording. We did. I thought it was fantastic. What did you think? Well, it came as a relief because when I first started looking, I actually got sent to a real porn site. Uh, <laughs> So I was I was I was in quite a sensitive frame of mind when I finally found the Hedy Lamarr version, and um, you know what? I was I thought it was fantastic. I was surprised by, to see something from that period with, with so many of the conventions of the period. I mean, the music um, it's it's not exactly Barry White, you know. Mm. It's a sort of like kind of bombastic kind of string accompaniment, and it's very sensual. The close-ups of her lips, the way she sort of. Puts her, she bites on her fingers at one point. There's a lot mm. of shag ruggage, you know? Yeah. A lot of sort of fingers trailing on shag rugs and a lot less sort of pan away to blurry flower arrangement than one might expect. Yeah. I bought it. I thought it was really beautiful. I love the postcoital cigarette as well. You know that the French have a word for that postcoital feeling that has no equivalent in the English language. Somewhat tellingly. <laughs> it's um it's jouissance. So this this film is an international success and not least because the pope denounces it as being immoral oh because oh my god the patriarchy has a problem with like women having agency in their own sexual desire. <gasps> Who knew? Do you think they printed the pope's denouncement on the poster because if they weren't <laughs> they were missing a trick? <laughs> I feel like I would do that. That is like a next level like age certification. So an upside down cross. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Afterwards, Hetty kind of says she was tricked into filming it, which I may or may not buy. Well, I wouldn't buy if it weren't for what I've learned about revenge pornography in the last couple of years. There's yeah. a great quote from her where she talks about sitting with her parents in the premiere, watching her bottom like bounce up and down on the screen as she's running through the woods and the father's look on her face. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, the fa her father's look on his face watching her bottom which is somewhere that i can say none of us ever want to be i find it awkward watching other people's bottoms on screen with my parents yeah i heard that the director was prodding her bottom with a drawing pin to get her to thrash around in um pseudo ecstasy 
Yeah, she said later that she was just in a lot of pain and she was really, really exhausted from lying on what looks like a comfy couch, but mm. was actually a really uncomfortable table. A lot more continuity with that porn channel I accidentally clicked onto than what might have first think. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about, you know, watching it because it looks so vivid, it looks so real, and it mm. looks like she's in so much pleasure, and just thinking about the mental process of faking an orgasm and wondering if we all have a lot more in common with Hedy Lamar than we might like to think. I don't know. I've never faked one. I would swear by it. Honest boys. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to name names. Don't know most of them. Hetty <laughs> <laughs> returns to stage in the backlash from the film. So back in Vienna, she stars in a play called Sissy. It comes, I think the premiere of the play is right when the film comes out. So she's suddenly becoming like quite an important star. Big audience, I imagine. And she plays the Empress Elizabeth of Austria. So it's quite a different role and she really enjoys it. There she catches the attention of Frederick Mondi. He is an Austrian fascist arms dealer who is buddies with Mussolini. No arms dealer is a great, a good arms dealer, but, but a fascist arms dealer who's friends with Mussolini. Yeah. So evidently Hitler used to come to his parties as well, but he's Jewish, so this was a bit of an issue. Okay. So he ends up moving most of his money um, into Switzerland. I believe that's where most of the arms dealers still keep their money. (laughs) (laughs) And after the Anschluss of Austria by Nazi Germany in 1938, And for those of us who don't speak Second World War quite as well as we should, what is the Anschluss? Okay, so the Anschluss is when, is the annexation of Austria. Okay. By Germany, where Hitler's reuniting the German-speaking All right, peoples. that's enough, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so after the Anschluss, uh, he actually sells his arms business to the German government. They buy it, because even though he's an uh, embarrassing Jew, he also throws really good parties. Yeah, and he's quite comfortable selling it to the anti-Semitic yeah. German and then governing he powers. flees Typical bloody to arms Switzerland. Dealer. Okay. I'm only going to say one other thing about him, and I'm not going to talk nearly as much about any of her other husbands, because this is hilarious, I think. I think I see him as kind of like a Henry VIII figure Ooh. of World War Two in the fact that he manages to be married five times. One of his wife dies, there are three divorces, and one of them outlives him. Divorce, beheaded, died. Divorce, beheaded, survived. <laughs> Yeah, Um, and his first wife, right before setting eyes on Hetty, lasts a mere six weeks. Mm. He's also the third richest man in Austria. He sees Hetty in the theater. He starts sending her these extravagant bouquets, more and more of them, and demanding to meet her. Typical entitled male behavior is what I have written in my notes. Hey, you know what? I often advise men we're not sure how to, you know, make you know make sweet with a loved one to send flowers. People often forget. (laughs) It still works. Anyone? I don't care who sends them. Send me flowers. Okay. Uh, I like them all. We'll uh, we'll post Ash's address on Twitter so you guys can get that down to like that. sounds like a very sensible idea. <laughs> <laughs> they get married uh, less than a year later. Okay. So still in 1931. He, unsurprisingly, is incredibly controlling. He was driven mad to quote Hetty, by her film Ecstasy, and evidently spent a not inconsiderable amount of money trying to buy up all the copies. So guess what the production company did? I actually don't know. They made more. Because he them. bought more. That was terribly clever. <laughs> it was terribly clever. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't see that coming. You need to buy the rights, mate. You need to buy the rights. Yeah. He was so controlling, she really couldn't leave the house. She was very much um, a, a showcase. She'd show up to all his parties and play hostess and had jewels. All the servants were spying on her. Isn't it incredible how free spirits end up with controlling men? It's, it's almost as though they're incensed by it. Inspired by, inspired to dominate it. By 1937, the war is coming. Hitler has banned her first film, mostly because she's Jewish. And then her father dies suddenly from a heart attack. And this really pushes her to change her life and escape. And she realizes it's been four years and she can't continue to just live her life like this. And having had quite a meteoric rise to success... She has spent the last four years locked up in a castle playing hostess. Yes. 
Wow, I'm amazed she lasted that long. She, but she's still a, young, isn't she? What she's is she? still quite young. Mm. She's 23. Has she had any Jesus, children? She, no. Okay, thank So no children yet. Children are lovely, but not in that marriage. Oh, God, no. And so what she does is she finds a maid and hires a maid who looks a bit like her. Oh, so I this love where this is going. Yeah, so this is kind of a, a long plan. She's very clever. She waits until... Given that she is one of the most beautiful women in the world... Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's quite a hard recruit. I know, but she manages it. Okay, that girl should not be working at mating. She should be modelling. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe she was after this. We'll see. But what she does is she waits until the night of a fabulous dinner party. Mussolini might be there. I don't know, but mm. he could be. And she convinces her husband to let her wear like all of her jewellery that's normally in the safe. Love this. She puts a sleeping draft in the maid's cocoa. Okay. She goes to the party. She comes back. It's always cocoa. She steals the maid's clothes, put the maid in her clothes, <gasps> and then she escapes the house on a bicycle. Did she put her jewels on the maid? No, of oh, course, course not. she didn't. She put them in her coat and she takes them to London. So I don't have any details about the journey from, you know, Vienna to London. I assume she didn't ride the bicycle the entire way, but I kind you of wish she had. stow them on the boat if she'd grown fond of it true. by that point. I think this is magnificent that she put all her jewels on. Yeah. Rather, for future reference, gentlemen, if you're listening, if, if, you know, <laughs> if a woman's coming down for dinner with all her jewellery on... Check the maid. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I have what she says in her own words about her marriage. She says, I knew very soon I could never be an actress while I was his wife. He was an absolute monarch in his marriage. I was like a doll. I was like a thing, some object of art which had to be guarded and imprisoned, having no mind, no life of its own. Well, that's fairly unequivocal. Yeah. So, in London in 1937, she tries to get back into film. She meets with Louis B. Mayer, who's the head of MGM. Mm-hmm. And I think in one of the articles I read, it was described as he was busy, quote-unquote, scouting talent in Europe, okay. which is an interesting euphemism. For sex tourism? Well... <laughs> really gone there no it's an interesting euphemism for trying to get cheap all the jewish actors and actresses who were trying to flee europe wow so she gets an interview with him and he gives her a lowball offer he says he'll give her 125 dollars a week and told her she had to keep her clothes on so she storms out of that fucking office. Was it the money or the directive or the nudity band that upset her? <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like I feel like both would work. Yeah, I don't think I'd like to be told to keep my clothes on. It would definitely make me want to take them off. Yeah, definitely. Was that not a particularly high salary at that point? $125 a week? I don't know, but he was he was there specifically to try and get like okay. cheap talent yeah so she sells the last of her jewelry and books a passage on the same boat to new york that he is taking okay and she takes her gowns with her she stages a few chance encounters on the boat where she's in her finest (laughs) and she describes (laughs) then what you don't know about are all the encounters she attempted to stage that didn't (laughs) work out that just saw her standing on the bulkhead for 45 minutes wearing a mink slip What she does is she doesn't try to bump into him. Mm. She just tries to make sure that she is in his vicinity so that he can watch all the men watching her. (sighs) That's fabulous. And she does this for three days. Wow. You know, I used to try and do something not dissimilar in bars, but no one ever looked. I have never uh, had the balls to try anything of the sort. It's a very coy approach to flirting. (laughs) Flirting. You just go and stand somewhere. <laughs> Some call well, it not trying. It uh it worked for Hetty, and on the third day in the journey out, she just walks straight up to his table, sits down, he offers her five hundred dollars a week. That's and a she signs a contract. Significant rise. That I'm is a significant rise. Gonna chuck some head maths at you, that's three hundred and fifty five dollars more a week. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a impressive percentage. <laughs> Not to be too precise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And at this point, mind, she still doesn't speak English. Good golly, Miss Molly. I know. I'm really impressed. And this is 
past the age of silent cinema. You know, that's a problematic. Like, I know Rudolf Valentino didn't speak much English, and mm-hmm. that caused... That was no, no issue. But... At this point, we're in the age of the talkie, aren't yeah. we? As, we, as we? as the kids like to call it. <laughs> <laughs> so she says of this, if things don't come easy, figure out why and then do something about it. I think she did. Oh my God. Where's her motivational? It's like yeah. motivational speaking. My lady boner for Hedy Lamar just got a little harder. I really wish you wouldn't call it that. <laughs> <laughs> and for the record, folks, she's miming it too. <laughs> So in Hollywood, she's kept in an MGM house with a bunch of other European starlets. I've been to the MGM Hotel in Las Vegas. Is it anything like that? Probably not. I That's think this. Shame. I've She'd seen. She'd have liked the lions. <laughs> I think this is like it looks like a little bungalow with a pool. It doesn't look that fancy or anything. Okay, right. She starts to learn learn English, and she's just waiting for roles. And I think this takes over a year. She says she is bored to death. She came over to work, she came over to be successful, and there's this long period of just waiting, learning English, hanging out with other starlets, whom she does not describe in a very complimentary manner. Sounds a lot like the Big Brother house. So she finds, she describes this period in her life as being incredibly dull. I think she's being a bit bloody impatient. I mean, I know she's got a go-getting attitude, but, you know, take the time, learn the language. She's probably, like, really... She's just run away from a really abusive relationship and wants to throw herself into her work. Who here has not fled the country from some abusive relationship and tried to do the same thing unsuccessfully? I've never actually done that. I'd usually just make the man go away. It's a Um. power move. (laughs) I'll try that next time. So she's cast in Algiers in 1938, which is still one of her most famous films. The film created a national sensation, and according to one viewer, when her face first lit the screen... Everyone gasped. Lamar's beauty literally <laughs> took one's breath away. That's too much. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's too. It's too much. I mean, I don't think any. I don't think. I don't think that face is out there. <laughs> I, I don't. You know. Maybe. I don't know. This is like this is the beginning of film, though. I feel mm. like today we're kind of inundated with images yeah, of beautiful I think that's women. Very true. And also, maybe she'd have had a look that was quite unusual in yeah. American cinema. And she was a raven-haired beauty, as I believe the fans were fond of oh, yeah. calling her. Interesting side fact about Hedy Lamar: she is the actress that uh, Snow White, the animated film, was based Look on. Kid. Did and you know really that the stepmother it? was based on Greta Garbo? <gasps> Very European cast, that animation. Yes. I suppose it was set in Europe. So if you don't know what Hedy Lamar looks like, please go Google her now. And gasp. And gasp. So her career in Hollywood takes off, but she get, keeps getting typecast as a foreign and exotic beauty with little substance. She hates it. So she kind of muscles her way in. She's always bugging the producers, give me a decent film, give me a decent film, give me a decent film. And finally, Boontown comes available. The part that she won is already cast, so she takes a much smaller part, and she's playing opposite Clark Gable. Are these films in colour? Is she in colour yet? I don't Technicolor, know. Technicolor, as the kids like to call those talkies. I ju- most of the films I've seen her in are black okay. and white, but I think later... Because she's, she's a fairly prominent actress through the 1950s, mm. so I don't know okay. when that transition This is probably still... No, I love Clark Gable. I love I him. I do, too. So she begs to be put in Boomtown opposite Clark Gable in 1914. 40. 1940. She's Not born in 1940s. So the part is far more challenging and against type, and the result is an astounding success. Oh. Because shocking, she can act. Right. Well, the point isn't that... I assume they, no one ever thought she couldn't. It's just they didn't think she needed to. <laughs> oh, my God. Acting for ugly so girls. simple, <laughs> but probably true. What was this film? What sort of type was she, what kind of character was she playing if she was no longer the European femme fatale? I honestly don't know. It's it's Boomtown. And Sounds I, like it's set in the West. I think it's about the gold rush. Okay. I feel like we should probably watch that this evening. I thought we were watching Cabaret. <gasps> oh, come on, you know we're going to watch Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> she signs a five-year contract with MGM. No, I can't do maths. 
seven-year contract with MGM, and she leaves them in 1945. Okay, at which point, it turns out that I'm the I'm the maths whiz. It would require wizardry to, to come up with this number. She's 31. She's 31 at that point. Uh, she tries to move into production, and she films a film... She films a production company. They make three films, and these are the only other films I'm going to tell you about, which is The Stranger Woman in 1946, which is evidently... 32. She's 32 then. She's, just keep you... Just keep you, keep you breast of her age okay <laughs> she then made dishonored lady in 1947 she's 33 then and with robert cumming she makes a comedy called let's live a little in 1948 i'm bored of doing this numbers thing now okay uh n- the only thing these really have in common is none of them are like very much of a commercial success okay and though her film career continues like through the 50s so she's still acting she's still acting alongside producing these films yeah she was small did she star in the films she produced yes she did oh too so i just i just wanted to point that out she's got brains but she wasn't the films that she produced weren't that commercially successful but were they good I don't know. Let's go watch them and find out. I hear out. some films are good and not commercially successful. <gasps> Shocking. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about her marriages. Finally, something that really matters. <laughs> so do you know how many times she was married? I'm going to guess five times. Okay, why five? Well, I was going to say six because she was married to Henry VIII before, but then I thought <laughs> that seems outlandish, uh, so I'm just going to go one less because it still feels like quite a lot. You were actually right in your first guess. She was married six times. <sighs> and I'm not going to really dwell on them that much. I just didn't think it could be that many times because that is, that's, that's yeah. you know, I, I, I think come, I mean, I've not, I've been, not been married at all yet, which it can't be said for both of us, uh, but I, I feel maybe come three Maybe four marriages. I'd probably, I'd probably just be happy with some I cohabitation. Feel like get really bored after a certain point. How many dresses <laughs> can you go through the ordeal of choosing? Oh God, I hadn't even thought about that. I mean, the how many speeches can you ask people to make? Actually, do you use the same bridesmaids? I think organizing the wedding would be like much easier if I had like two or three like you know practices, right? <laughs> yeah, I bet that last wedding was great. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to not focus on this because everybody does, and frankly, it's dull. Quick list. Frederick Mandel. Frederick Mandel. uh, For four years, we've already talked about. She couldn't handle Frederick Mandel. (laughs) Ah, I like that. Jean Markey, who she was married to for a mere two years. Lost the sparky with Jean Markey. So Jean Markey was actually a portly screenwriter, but from her letters, it was obvious that she was madly in love with him. Uh, That would be her Arthur Miller phase. And he was unfaithful to her within several months of them getting married. Are you implying that he should have been less likely to be unfaithful to her because she was more attractive than him? (gasps) No. Okay, good, because I'm not sure that would be an okay thing to do. Yeah, I'm just saying that she was obviously taken for granted. Poor girl. And what she says about this marriage is that a man does not try to find out what's inside of you. A man does not try to scratch the surface. You never know if he's in love with you or his idea of you. A lot of wisdom learned the hard way. And that's marriage number two. Okay, so we've got four more to go on the road to disillusionment. So John Loder, who she was married with, again, four years, actor, and she actually has two children with him. Uh, Husband number four, Ernest Ted Stauffer, who she was married to a mere year, who is a nightclub owner, restaurateur, and former band leader. And that is literally all I know about him. Wow, I think she was having a bit of a crazy period then. she was. (laughs) Husband number five, which I think is a bit more serious, was W. Howard Lee. Well, he doesn't have a first name, so clearly he's a pretty straight-up dude. Yeah, and they were married for seven years. He was a Texas oil man. At this point, her acting career was kind of winding down a little Mm -hmm. bit. They opened a a huge ski resort in Colorado, uh, which she threw a lot of her energy in and was the the brains behind. And then, unfortunately, he kept it after the divorce. Um. So I think losing that kind of ski resort and that she had built up over Mm. such a long period of time was worse than losing the husband. I hate it when you break up with someone and you lose, they take the ski resort. Evidently, she didn't blame the lawyer, though. Because oh. husband number six. 
weeks. Wow, there's not a lot of breathing room between those two then. Uh, well, three years. Okay. So three years later, she marries Louis J. Bowies, who was Lamar's divorce lawyer. And I have two honorary mentions. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is Howard Hughes. <sighs> I know. Wow, notorious aviator, filmmaker, and latter-day recluse. And investor. Mm. He was known during his lifetime as the most financially successful individual in the world. Uh. He's important later, I promise. Okay. So he was a boyfriend, and the other boyfriend you told me about. It was Charlie Chaplin! Charlie Chaplin! In 1940, they had a thing, and he wasn't actually terribly polite about her. He said, he said that in repose her face was enough to move men to madness. And I think he meant in a good way. The problem was her smile. Her smile shattered the illusion. But it was alright, because she still had nice babs. He didn't say babs. Or maybe he did. Seems like the sort of thing he might have said, actually. But yeah. That's horrific. Isn't that nasty? So, you know, you're best when you're still, when you're most like an object, when you're animated. The spell it's broke. Do you feel like this is like a long line of short men trying to build up their own sexual importance by putting down beautiful women that they claim to have slept with? Is Charlie Chaplin short? I feel like he was short. He was blonde, which not a lot of people realise. What was that? Was it a case of that? I suspect it was certainly a case of, of, of a man trying to make himself better by breaking down a beautiful woman. I don't think not that's what that we have is. any personal experience with that or anything. Then again, maybe she had bad teeth. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't. I, I actually went online and looked at for a smiling to check. I was like, "What does he mean? She's got a forked tongue." <laughs> God, I would do her even if she had a forked tongue. Oh, I think it would be kind of fabulous. I could kind of get behind that. Yeah. So we're leaving the men she fucked behind because who cares really? And married, dear. Why did she marry so many men? Was she looking for love? I think so. Why else would you, I suppose? She also said that no man ever lived up to her father. And I think she had a really idyllic childhood, and Mm. I think she was always looking for that sense of family. It seems sad that she couldn't be alone. The next thing I have written down in my notes is she was generally very lonely, but she threw herself into her work. She should have got a dog. The second thing I have written down in my notes is that she had an incredibly rich interior life. And this is where her passion and her satisfaction with life came from. Do you mean interior decorating? No. Oh. She had Because I have a really rich interior decorating life. <laughs> I mean that she had she had a marvelous brain and she really reveled in using her brain to come up with inventions mm. and to do science experiments. So her love affair with chemistry far outshone any of her actual love affairs. And I think that that horrendous track record of marriages doesn't detract from the fact that she was really very self-fulfilled. She had a lifelong and highly rewarding relationship with herself. Yes. Yes, because she was engaged in internal dialogue. Yes, an internal dialogue that has been so rewarding for all of us what came out of it. And I'm going to get there. Yeah, because I know there's been a bit of a people, there's been mutterings about Hedy of late. I know. Not just a pretty face. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Her first invention was at the age of five, and she thrived on understanding how objects and things fit together and what they could become. That's, who put it like that? Was that Hedy? No, that was me. We put that really well. It makes me want to be better at that thing you just described. <laughs> I think so. So she put I'm quite it... good at jigsaws. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a bit like what you're talking about? Uh, no, not really. Okay. But if you want to hear how she said it, mm-hmm. she said, I was different, I guess. Maybe I came from a different planet. I don't know. But whatever it was, inventions are easy for me to do. That's fantastic. Mm. I mean, to actually invent something... I don't think I've ever invented anything. Have you? No. No. Actually, that's not true. On this, I suppose it's this, isn't it? I I was going to say I invented an entire religion when I was about 12. And how's that going for you? Uh, It was a great thought experiment, and I think it really opened up my mind to the ways in which religion is good at controlling the masses. 
Wow. At what point did your parents send you to see the school counsellor? Uh, well, they sent me to boarding school about a year later. Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, where I had a larger audience upon which to practice. Just kidding. <laughs> You'd make a great cult leader, man. <laughs> uh, I'd, I'd sign no, up. No, thank you. I don't. I don't want to take responsibility for anybody else's bullshit. Thanks. Yeah. Please take mine. I am tired <laughs> of it. <laughs> so back to Hetty. Despite her grueling days and six-hour work. I put six hour work weeks. Obviously, I mean six day work weeks. Six hour work week does sound like a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) My God. So she would stay up even later the nights working on her latest inventions. And then she had a a giant lab in her house. Is this at the same time as she's acting? Yeah. Wow. So this is throughout her entire acting career as soon as she gets to the US. I think she probably would have been doing this in her earlier career, but she didn't really have the independence, Mm -hmm. um, especially married to her first husband, to be able to do these things. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the joys that she found in Hollywood, wasn't in her relationships, Mm -hmm. it wasn't in the adoring fans. People come up to her and ask her to sign autographs, and she would get confused because she was like, why do you want a picture of me? That doesn't make any sense. This isn't my real achievement. Yeah, what her real achievement is what was she was doing at night back home. Okay. And I mentioned Howard Hughes earlier. Um, they used to date, but she said that he was the worst lover she ever had, but that they had a strong intellectual connection. And one of the gifts that he gave to her was this portable chemistry set that she could keep in her trailer. So in between breaks and filming, she could go back and do experiments. Oh, that's incredible. And one of the, I think, the coolest inventions she did was she actually designed a new type of airplane wing for him. And she did it by studying how birds and fish move. <sighs> now, that sort of biotechnology but so it's technology inspired by biology yeah i think that's it's so old world in some ways isn't it you know it's, it's very, very much da vinci. what da vinci was doing but actually i think it's something that they're kind of turning to more and more now wow. i just i think that's poetic it's a shame and beautiful. that she and howard you know that howard was you know well, a terrible lover as she's so, i know she's so sensitively put it i mean this guy bought her this amazing travel chemistry you know kit and she's I think they had a very long and fulfilling friendship. Okay. The sex was terrible, mm. so they stopped. Mm. Yeah. That's fine. All their chemistry was in the set. Oh, oh that's very good. Thanks. <laughs> Other inventions that she did was an improved traffic stoplight. and How could you improve them? They're perfect. I have... I have no idea. <laughs> if anyone knows what her traffic stoplight system was, please tell us. It ain't broke. I'm curious. It ain't broke. <laughs> well, maybe it's not broke because she fixed it. Oh, very good point. Yeah. Um, she also invented, like, if a tablet you could put into water that would turn it into, like, a cola and make it fizzy and things. By her own admission, this was actually terrible because it tasted a bit like Alka-Seltzer. <laughs> do you know what Alka-Seltzer is? Is that a British thing? I do. I do. My dad used to drink them when he had a hangover. It's it's the best for hangovers. Yeah. But it's yep. not something I would drink for fun. Still, in theory, a fantastic invention. The war starts. She and other stars, even though they've been recruited on the cheap, mm-hmm. were told to hide their Jewish heritage. And not even her kids knew that she was Jewish. WTF? Yeah. Why? Was that... Was it because it was... What? Surely they didn't think it would be a problem in the States. Maybe they just didn't want it to to distract, I suppose. Because I can't even begin to... I think getting into the war in World War II was really controversial. And the US Mm. didn't get into the war until Japan attacked them on their soil. That's true. And I think there was some sympathy for the Jewish people, but a lot of what was going on wasn't known. And there was probably a lot of anti-Semitism in the mm. U.S. as well, and it probably brought things out that it even there were anti-Semites yeah. in the royal family in Britain at this period. That's absolute nonsense. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Look it up. I think I think yeah. it was just a it was generally just controversial, mm-hmm. and the film studios and the last thing they wanted their starlets. Isn't yeah. that a terrible term? They're starlets. Sounds like twiglets. Mm. Starlets to be was controversial. Exactly. Mm. So nothing pretty about controversy. But she did it. To, I mean, she was raised Catholic, though. Yeah. So she's Jewish 
by birth and by okay. heritage. Not by. But even her children didn't know she was Jewish. Like that really hmm. bothers me. Is that it's it's she she took that order and kind of internalized it to such a degree. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, she such a proud original self-made woman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, where were we? 1940, a passenger ship is torpedoed. So passengers, including 83 children, are killed by the Germans. This is the Lusitania. Yeah. Boom. Hetty is hiding her Jewishness, but she really, she's really angry and she really, really wants to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And she finds out that uh, the torpedoes which took the ship down are radio controlled and it's really, really difficult to stop them. So because she's this amazing venter, she's, she sees this problem, she understands the problem and then she's like, what can we do to fix it? This is kind of the moment where all of her skills as an inventor, her experience, I think, being married to an arms dealer probably mm. comes in. And she invents what we call radio hopping technology. And this is the technology which Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, uh, satellite guiding systems is all based on. You're blowing my mind, Sarah. But I know. she's a chemist. That's physics. How, how does she do that? That's difficult. I mean, you've you got you to gotta study all your life in a lab. You don't just have a lab at the bottom of your Spanish-style bungalow in Sunset Boulevard and nip <laughs> down to there at the end. I don't know. Um, yeah. So it's, I think I may have missed it. It's called frequency hopping. Okay. Well, I really wouldn't have known the difference. Yeah. Apologies to those of you who did. Radio frequency hopping. Yeah. And Are you going to tell me how it works? No. Thank God for that. Because, honestly, <laughs> I've read the documentary, I've even read the patent, and understand well you ain't no Hedy Lamar. so she wants to create a radio system that can intercept torpedoes and that guides them to a different target that can't be jammed and that's what the frequency hopping is yes is it intercepting the torpedoes being fired at allied or american ships it could also be used to send torpedoes wow. that couldn't be stopped towards the german ships so that's that. pretty cool. Um, just as an FYI, okay, when this came, finally came out in the 90s, she was accused by a prominent male engineer of plagiarizing this idea from the workrooms of her first husband because, you know, the patriarchy. Obviously, she couldn't have come up with it herself. I know. I just don't feel like her first husband was the kind of chap who was, you know, taking her to work with him. No. Also, it's very, very clear that the Germans did not have this technology themselves. Otherwise, they'd have been using it. Yeah. Now, did this technology, it's a big question, of course, was this technology applied? I'll get there. Okay. So she goes to her friend, the composer George Antheil. Okay. That's the closest she's got to a military connection. <laughs> that was paper being moved. Very analogue in this house. <laughs> Can I take that part out? That's the sound of her quill being swished around. <laughs> so she goes to her friend, the composer Jordan Anthill, to create a machine that could create a navigation system using the frequency hopping that she envisaged. And he actually succeeds. So you say envisaged. That's a bit vague. But she's she worked it out. She's, she invented you know, it. Okay. She invented the okay. technology. Okay. Right. She has the idea. I'm just trying to take this. Pro- I'm just trying to take it away from her. So she invented it. Problem. She came up with the idea. Okay. All right. I believe. It. I believe it. She goes to George and she says, "Can you actually make this into a machine?" And so he succeeds doing this by synchronizing a miniaturized player piano mechanism with radio signals. Which just sounds really this cool. Is fantastic that her protocol was a composer. I love it. <laughs> this is such a Hollywood saves the world I know. kind of endeavor. I think it really was. And he actually writes about this in his book, so we know a bit more about it, about them inventing this system together and all of their motivations. And his motivation was that his brother was the first American killed in World War II. Wow. So he was over in Europe, he was volunteering. Did he have to have such a direct personal motivation? I'd like to think I'd have been willing to help out regardless. I hope so. But I think in 1940 in Hollywood, you're pretty removed from it. Yes, you're absolutely right. Of course you would have been. They actually work on three different weapon inventions together, but I don't really know about the other two. Okay. So Mm -hmm. if anyone knows, tell us. I really hope one of them was a poison bubble gun. (gasps) Oh! 
That would have made me so happy. Actually, I think I've just invented that. I think you have. Fantastic. Let's make it. Let's go find a guitar player to make it happen for me. Let's. <laughs> then let's sell it to the Navy. There's a guy who plays pipes around the corner. Let's 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 go into talks with him. <laughs> so they go to the newly formed Inventors Council, who thinks that it's a brilliant idea, and they hook them up with an engineer at Caltech to help design the electronics part. Is that the California Technological Institute? Yeah, it is. Brilliant. Just translating for the you know. And then it's granted a patent. Wow. So Anthel said that we began talking about the war, which in the late summer of 1940 was looking extremely black. Hetty said she did not feel very comfortable sitting there in Hollywood and making lots of money when things were in such a state. She said that she knew a great deal about munitions and various secret weapons, and that she was thinking seriously of quitting MGMM and going to Washington, D.C. to offer her services to newly established National Inventors Council. So what they do next is what you would do if you created this really cool weapon and you wanted to use it to stop Mm -hmm. the German warships is Mm -hmm. they go to the Navy. And guess what the Navy does? Tells her to stop smiling. It spoils her looks. It's a good thing she's got good breasts. Close. Laughs. Do they... They told her that she'd be... be, They basically, like, are incredibly patronizing. Did they tell her she'd be better off inspiring and motivating the troops? Yes, they did, Ashley. Not only did they tell her she'd be better off inspiring the troops, they said that she's a movie star. She should go out and sell war bonds. So guess what she does? Does she sell more war bonds than any of the other movie stars put together? You bet your ass she does. Demonstrate. So she raises $25 million worth of war bonds, <gasps> which is the modern equivalent of $343 million in war bonds. That's incredible. And then, to add insult to injury, the Navy seized the patent in 1942 because it was the property of a foreign alien. Mm. Because she is not yet an American She's citizen. She's not yet an American citizen. How fucked up is that? Oh, I can't imagine how Hedy managed to make peace with that. Then again, perhaps she was just happy that the patent was in their possession. You know, she wanted it to be made. She wanted it to be used. Yeah. Was it made? Was it used? Yeah, because otherwise we wouldn't have Bluetooth or Wi-Fi or we wouldn't have made it to the moon or but anything else like that. But was that developed using Lamar's patent? Yeah. So in 1962, at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, an updated version of their design appears on Navy ships. No. Conveniently, just after the patent has expired. Though they, to be fair, the patent wouldn't have counted anyway because it's the property of an illegal alien. Oh, no. So finally, in 1997, Lamar and Anthiel received the Electronic Frontier Foundation Pioneer Award. E-F-F-P-A. At this point, she was so reclusive that she didn't actually attend this ceremony to get the award, but her son accepted it. Okay, she'd have been, what, 83, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. And she watched the ceremony via video link. Which isn't something she invented. (laughs) No. Um, but it wasn't until 1997 that she got recognition for work that she'd done, you know, almost 50 50 plus years previously. I mean, it's nice that she did at least get it within her lifetime. Let's hope she was not too embittered to enjoy it. Which one could hardly blame her for being. In 2014, when Hedy Lamarr would have been 100 years old, she and Anthiel were posthumously inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Yay! Got there in the end. I don't have much of a fix on what happens to her after the Second World War. Wait, she's got the production company in the 50s. No, you said she's still on screen in the 50s. Yeah. When does she start to disappear from the public eye? So I think her last big film is 1958 or 1959. I mean, she's a woman of some years by then. 45. Had a good innings in Hollywood. In the 60s, she's offered a part and she starts, but she isn't able to keep up with the productions. I think she actually faints on set. Oh, dear. And does she she's have poor replaced health? by Zaza Gabor in that <gasps> film. Well, if you're going to be replaced, let it be by Zaza Gabor. I know. Why, does, why is she fainting? Does she struggle with her health? So that's a really interesting question, which 
yeah, this is a good time to talk about it. She struggled really horribly with drug addiction. And like many stars of her area... She was a chemist. Well... Homebrew. It's it's not even a drug addiction that she started. It's something that she developed at MGMM. M- MGM. MGM. You've been mispronouncing it quite a lot, but okay. I've been letting it go. Cool. Uh, so she developed a drug addiction at MGM because they were giving her drugs to perform. So they would give them, they would give all of the actresses uppers Mm -hmm. to get them going at like three and four in the morning Mm -hmm. when they were shooting, whenever they were supposed to be sleeping, they would give them downers to make sure that they went to sleep. And she left MGM in 1945. She was not able to leave the drugs behind. These studios back in the great age of the studio, they really were horrible places to work weren't they yeah. I mean they were essentially assembly lines you know the number of girls they seem to have churned through and out running them like cattle a lot of her contemporaries had the same struggles with addiction well actually did you know that her name which was given to her you know her stage name Hedy Lamar, because Hedwig was not going to fly she was named Hedy for another actress a very successful actress who died in 1926 from drug addiction. Oh, God. I didn't know that. So her health was not great. The other thing that she kind of struggled with was body dysmorphism. Okay. Be- as she got older. Because this is the most beautiful woman in the world. Gosh. The most perfect breast. Oh, yes. Much commented on. she's aging. Okay. And she doesn't know how to deal with that. She Maybe she should have been the inspiration for the stepmother and not Snow White. Maybe she would have been able to have developed with that. And it's... What I find the tragedy with her is in kind of these later years and how she struggles so much with what she looks like in the aging process when she should have been celebrated for how brilliant she was and how amazing and inventive and creative. And instead, she was basically became kind of a laughing stock for being older and getting older. And people used to make fun of her very publicly on TV was shows. She, was she aging disgracefully, as one might put it? Um, well, she experimented a lot with plastic surgery. And in some of the documentaries that I watched, they actually said that she was quite a pioneer in plastic surgery as well. So she would come in and tell the surgeons that she wanted types of surgery that are really common now, but hadn't been invented then, such as hiding facelift scars behind the ears, for example. And so she was, she really was like pushing the bounds of what was possible with plastic surgery to keep her looks. And it, it was, as we all know, it's a losing game especially for an addict yeah i mean yes i agree with you it seems tragic that her sense of self was so rooted in externals because that was what she was valued for by her public by her fans and she allowed herself to be perceived by them rather than giving herself you know the values you know she had qualities that would not be damaged by age in fact they could invent things they could have they could have been enriched but she doesn't really have any amazing inventions that we know of after World War II. I think that's really sad. And I think that the feedback that she got from that mm. whole process really helped throw her into this kind of downward spiral. Do we have her records? Do we know everything? Are we... So the, one of the reasons we know that any of this happened is that she did some recordings when she was in her 80s with this reporter. And he... Because he went to go meet Hedy Lamar, the actress, and find out what had happened to her. And all of this kind of came out. And I think he's... I don't remember what his name is. But he fought really hard to get her the recognition, you know, in her later age. And this is in the early 90s, so in 1997. He so was part of that process. Uh, wonderful. So we have those. So we, we can actually hear the recordings of her speaking about her life. But I'd be interested in knowing those records of the actual experiments that she was doing. I don't know. I'd yeah. love to find out. Um, Maybe there's more in there. In the research that I was doing, I found that she had written this autobiography, and that was, of course, the first thing that I went to go look up. Did you actually read it? I did. And You're amazing. It was published in 1966. It was called Ecstasy and Me, and it was the most horrendous piece of trash I have ever read in my entire life. That's disappointing. It was 
completely ghostwritten. I don't think she had any control over what happened. I would have thought her eminently capable of writing her own autobiography. I'm sure she would have been. I think this was published in the mid-60s. I think she was very much in the throes of drug addiction. She agreed to it. She needed the money. But Did she struggle financially in later years? She did. But then she goes out publicly to say on TV it was not written by her, and much of it was fictional, which I believe, because it was crap. Lamar actually sued the publisher, saying that many of the details were fabricated by its ghostwriter, Leo Guild. Hilariously, she was sued later by Jean Ringgold, who asserted the book plagiarized material from his article written in 1965. <laughs> Even though she'd already successfully prosecuted someone for, for having not written yes. of it. I said in my notes that I was actually surprised the Bodleian has a copy. Okay, when you say is it was trashy, bad? now now I kind of want to read it. Yeah. Is it, is it. Is it the writing style? I called it a horrid piece of writing. I was amazed that Bodleian has a copy. It is trash fiction. It delves into her acting career in Hollywood. It seems to be the sort of thing that would be easy to write about from interviews, but isn't actually very personal. There's no hint of her genius, and but I will say that it's she's very charming. Yeah. And that still comes through because I think it's based on a series of interviews that she did both with him and in in the press. And some of the charm comes out. I mean, she was quite a flamboyant character, wasn't she? I think there's a, in this, in, again, I return to my article that I read. Um, there's an anecdote about her sort of appearing in the Nevada desert in her 80s, wearing a satin nightgown and saying, I am Hedy Lamar still. I think it really does sound like that. It's very Duchess Malfi. It sounds like someone who's taken her beauty for granted, and that's the only thing that's interesting about her. And it doesn't reflect the apparent struggle that she has, which is really apparent from all the actual interviews that you have with her later. It saddens me immensely to think she didn't invent anything of note after the 40s. Well, maybe she did. Maybe we just don't know about it. I'm going to choose to believe that. I hope so. Or maybe the fact that she sold all those war bonds convinced her that her real power lay in her celebrity. I think that's quite sad. It is, because it doesn't last. So in the 1980s, Lamar retreated from public life and settled in Miami Beach, Florida. Well, that's a classic place to go in your later, in your silver years. So she, she retreats almost constantly from public life, but she... Including from her family. But she's poor. Well, she's she wins some lawsuits. She does some things. She mm-hmm. kind of... She makes do. She's mm-hmm. got a small apartment. But she's got a telephone. She was pr- very personally secluded from the world. But she loved talking on the phone. And she would spend six to hours, eight hours a day talking on the phone to friends, family, etc. And I think that the telephone for her gave her that kind of outlet that she Well, there's craved. freedom to the telephone, isn't there? Because you're visually absent. Yeah. If you're someone who's mortified by the loss of your looks, you're just a safety to it. A you're beautiful just a voice. voice and a brain at the other end because of the Because in line. many ways, her, her beauty was, was a burden, wasn't it? Yeah. It stole the limelight. Well, I like to think that in her later years in Florida, she was able to get some sense of peace yes. from this. And she was able to do the interviews which have allowed us to really know about her life mm-hmm. in a way that was not publicly available while she was living it. And were there any particularly good interviews done? Well, I suppose there was this one in the early 90s, wasn't it? The nuts. It says. And it's I, by the Renaissance as such. I'm sad I can't remember the guy's name. We don't remember your name, but we are grateful for your work. Oh, we are. As is Hedy, wherever she is now. Yeah, I think so. So, she died on the 19th of January, 2000, of heart disease, age 85. Good lord, it's mad to think she made it into this millennia. Her son, Anthony Lodger, spread her ashes in Austria's Vienna woods in accordance with her last wishes. Wow, so she went back home. I wonder if these are the woods from ecstasy... The thought just crossed my mind. Oh, that'd be fabulous. I hope so. (laughs) I hope he ran through them naked, throwing her ashes around. I suppose it comes back to her idyllic childhood, doesn't it? And there's something about... I mean, she was a refugee, essentially. The world she'd grown up in in was was closed to her. It was hostile to her. That's a deeply traumatic thing to take place. No wonder she always longed for it. And her father died... 
before she left for London, and then she was able to bring her mother over to the U.S. really before the war kicked off badly. Mm -hmm. So there was no home, there was no family to go back to either. Yes. In a sense, she came from a place that no longer existed. Yes, very much. I've got some of my favourite quotes I'd like to share. Oh, please do. Because I just think she is one of the most witty, charming people, in addition to being drop-dead gorgeous and having an amazing mind. Mm -hmm. So these are my favourites. Okay. Feel free to comment and laugh. Okay. I'll try to... I'll try my best. (laughs) (laughs) American men, as a group, seem to be interested in only two things. Money and breasts. It seems like a very narrow outlook. <laughs> um, gosh, they sound an awful lot like British men. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about her own, like looking back at her own life, she said that analysis gave me great freedom of emotions and fantastic confidence. I felt I had served my time as a puppet. Analysis gave me great confidence. And freedom of emotions. So she's someone who's really taken the time to reflect. That makes me feel that surely she should have been happy. Perhaps she was. Well, there was the kleptomania, I suppose. And the drugs. And the drugs. But no, it's, it's <laughs> There really was such a will hard. and a potential for, 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 a, for, a, for a wonderful and fulfilling life. Yeah. It seems incredible that it should end, or at least go through long periods where things were going very badly. And do you think that's because of her beauty? I think a lot of it was the drugs. Okay, I mean, Um, isn't beauty a drug? Yeah, I think a lot of it was the drugs, but I think also a lot of it is the fact that she was so beautiful and that the only external recognition she Mm. ever got was for how she looked, which is something that she had no agency or control over. I think she was trapped by it. Yeah, In a sense, you completely. know, she was, she, was, she was perceived and valued as pure surface. It was very hard for her to yeah. attach worth to her own internal life. I have a really good quote for that. Okay. You ready? Okay. Does she say it as well as I do? Uh, in a different way. I'll let her have it. <laughs> she says, any girl can look glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. <gasps> Fantastic. Now that should have been on her headstone. It should have scattered so magnificently through those Viennese woods. All you do is have to stand there and look stupid. I mean, that for me sums it up. The idea that glamour is somehow... Counter- glamour can only exist without an internal life. In order to have like a really grand exterior, we have to be purely that I think so and I think that kind of sums up the tragedy that she saw in her own life I think she felt conflicted there seems to have been a conflict between her inner and her outer self that needn't have existed I'm really glad and thankful that she was able to get the recognition that I Mm. think she deserved at the very end of her life what saddens me is that she strove and she pushed to be in the performing industry you know first theatre and then film you know, she didn't choose to pursue a life in science. So there must have been an appeal. There must have been an attraction. Yeah. Perhaps she saw it as a source of empowerment. Alas, once she gets into the MGM machine, it turns out to be something very different. I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Wouldn't have she made a job... You know, wouldn't it be nice if she'd just been a really happy research scientist? I think it is about power. I think it is about power at the end of the day because she was so smart... And she saw that her beauty gave her a source of power Mm. and she sought to capitalize on that. Mm. And she was growing up at a time where it was very, very difficult to, for women to gain recognition Mm. based on their intelligence and their creativeness and inventiveness and becoming a chemist may not have even been an option that was open to her. I think that's of course a very good point. I guess where she may have been wrong is that she thought she saw in her own beauty a source of power, but we don't own beauty. Beauty is the property of those who perceive it. In a sense, she handed all her power away. And I think that's something that she learned, and I think that her experience going to the Navy as someone that was seen as being powerful, 
and having value yeah. for being beautiful. She thought that that would allow mm-hmm. her to get recognition for where her true gifts lie. And instead, they told her to fuck off and go be a pretty face. What a brutal moment that must have been. Yeah. You know, if I was writing the romanticized version of Hedy Lamarr's story, I think I'd have her and Howard Hughes end up living in a mansion together. Visiting a sex therapist. Well, I would just say, like, with a a wide range of dildos available... (laughs) Uh, living Hedy in could s- invent them. Yeah, Hedy could invent. They could both invent them. Why not? Yeah, living in separate bedrooms. A couple of invent dildos together and just Stay together, keeping each other sane and fucking the world, not literally, but maybe literally, and just kind of going on to celebrate each other's genius. Flying away on a plane with bird wings. Oh, that that would be my my happy There's ending. There's a really nice anime in this. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only medium sufficiently whimsical. It is. Yeah. It would be fabulous. Yeah. So that is the life and genius of Hedy Lamar. Well, I love her too now, Sarah. Thank you guys so much for sharing this with us. Thank you. And uh, tune in for some happier stuff next time. This was meant to be the uplifting one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. But I think it is in a way. But I, I don't... I don't think any life is going to be totally sunshine and rainbows. I recommend you go watch the orgasm video now. It will make you feel better and then it will make you feel worse for feeling better about it. (laughs) Ah. And then watch the romping through the woods scene and then go watch Boomtown. Yes. Cool. Perfect. That's your evening sorted. (laughs) Now what are you going to do with us? All right. Bye-bye. We sit in coffee shops and discuss The subject of love we speak of our men folk, then we give up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Demons and Dames. We will respectfully encourage you to rate us, to review us, and to recommend us to your friends. And enemies. It might make you like them a bit better. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Demons Dames Pod, on Twitter at Dames Demons. Or you can get in touch with us via Facebook or demonsanddames at gmail.com. Bye. He says that he loves We're making history. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Something great's being born. What are you making? We're making a podcast series about notorious women in history. Excellent. Don't include your mother.